Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, Vanguard family and any visitors that might be joining us, Pastor Kerry here, bringing you the latest edition of our home Bible study series uh, during this coronavirus pandemic. You probably have noticed on the news in recent weeks that one of the major, major issues that our country has been fighting over is the issue of authority. Whether it's protests against police brutality or the president overruling mayors to send federal agents into local municipalities or churches that are refusing to shut down their indoor worship services at the request of a governor. All these issues boil down to one simple core issue. And that is authority. Who has it and who needs to submit to it? Well, in the scripture passage we're going to look at today, uh, we're, going to, we're going to see how Jesus handles the issue of authority. And we're going to see what he shows us about his own authority. Uh, and he's going to show us, by the way, who's really in charge uh, before we dive into God's Word together, though, let's pause and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word in prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, uh, we are continued to be, we just continue to be burdened for our nation, uh, even this week. Uh, Lord, please, would you provide justice for those who have been treated unjustly? And Lord, would you restore a respect, a healthy respect for authority in our citizens. Lord, would you restore integrity to those who have authority to exercise? And Lord, would you strengthen the unity of our country? Father, more importantly than that, we want to ask for revival in our country. If anything, all the news headlines this year and the dramatic changes that we've seen in our country are just another reminder of how bad people need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, please, would you use our church and all the other gospel-centered, healthy uh, churches to proclaim the message of the gospel boldly? And, Lord, would you use it to bring thousands to genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, Lord, as we open up the gospel of Mark today, would you give us insight and wisdom? Would you help us to understand how it relates to our lives and where we are right now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to continue this home Bible study series in the Gospel of Mark that I'm calling The Obedient Servant. Uh, you might remember that the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, uh, who took dictation from Peter. And Mark is the shortest of all four Gospels, 
And it's the fastest paced gospel. It reads like a, you've probably heard me say this before, it reads like an ESPN highlight reel. Uh, it's very quick paced. And that's probably because Mark de-emphasizes the teaching of Jesus and chooses instead to emphasize the miracles and the service of Jesus. For example, um, in the Gospel of Mark, there are 19 miracles, only four parables in one sermon. And that, you know, that, the breakdown of those statistics is a lot different in the other Gospels who have fewer miracles and more parables, more teaching. Mark also shows us the humanity of Christ more than any other gospel. We get a, we get a little more of a peek at Jesus' emotions in the gospel of Mark. And that, that might be another reason why I, I like it. It's one of my favorite gospels. And uh, besides the fact that it reads quickly and it's sort of like a highlight reel, but um, we, get, we get more insight into the humanity of Christ and his emotions. And so uh, having said that, follow along with me, if you would, as I read from Mark chapter 1, and we pick up the text where we left off last week. And I'm going to start in verse 21. Uh, it says, They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. All right, let me just stop right there. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that this passage tells us about Jesus. And it's simply this. Jesus taught the scriptures with divine authority. He taught the scriptures with divine authority. It says in verse 21 that they went, meaning he and the disciples, into Capernaum. Now, most of you know that Jesus was born and raised in Nazareth. And we're not told why exactly here, but in the second year of his ministry, he decided, Jesus decided to move his base of operations to Capernaum. That's, that's what this text is talking about. It's, it's the second year of his three-year ministry. Now, we also find out in verse 29, which we'll get to in a few minutes, that Capernaum is Peter's hometown. The Lord returned to Capernaum several times throughout his ministry, and it'll be re referenced throughout the, the Gospel of Mark. And there's two probable reasons for him setting up his base of operations in this village. Uh, first of all, Capernaum was strategically located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee on a major trade route. This means a lot of traffic would have come through the village of Capernaum, and more traffic means more people that hear the gospel, and those who do hear it and receive Christ, they then share it with others and that are passing through town, and then the gospel spreads along that interstate, to use a, a modern uh, I guess, metaphor, uh, th that interstate then carries the gospel with those people to neighboring regions. And so that would be the first reason. The second reason Jesus probably set his base of operations in Capernaum is that it was just about as far away from the city of Tiberias, which was on the south west side of the Sea of Galilee, it was just about as far away from Tiberias as you could get. 
Now, Tiberias is important because that is where King Herod lived. And King Herod is the one who had John the Baptist arrested earlier in Mark 1, and he eventually has John the Baptist beheaded in Mark 6. All that's important because what this allowed Jesus to do is to preach and to teach and to minister on the north side of Galilee without a lot of interference from religious or political authorities. That would come later in his ministry. Now, notice in the text it says in, in verses 21 and 22 that he entered a synagogue on the Sabbath and he was teaching. Jesus had actually been teaching in the synagogues for about a year at this point in his ministry. Uh, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 4 tells us that he had, in fact, gained a, re a reputation of being a good teacher. And this is probably why the chief priest at the synagogue here in Capernaum was willing to give Jesus the floor and to let him sort of be a guest speaker on that particular Sunday because the word had gotten around that he is a, an exceptionally gifted rabbi. Now, we're told the audience in the synagogue was astonished by his teaching. Uh, the main reason for this reaction, it seems to be in the text, if you look at verse 22, is that he taught as one who had authority. The Greek word for authority that's used here in the original text, it means to have the power of choice or the liberty of doing as one pleases. But m more than that, it the word was used uh, throughout the, the New Testament, especially the Gospels, to refer to the supernatural authority that Jesus had. So one of the ways we uh, scholars and pastors, theologians, get a sense of what a word means in the original text is, is we look at all the other uses and context in which it was used. And then we kind of can see a, a pattern or a theme. And so in this case, it's not just authority, but it's supernatural authority because in every other place where this Greek word is used, most of the time it was talking about Jesus's supernatural power or authority over various things. Now, I find it interesting that even God the Father knew he could not expect his son to fulfill his responsibilities on earth without giving him the authority to do so. I think this is just a short little parable, just that little statement there that even today leaders who have been given responsibility, whether it be in a department, a company, a church, uh, um, civil government, uh, over a sports team, whatever, they have to have authority to fulfill their responsibilities. Now, let's pause the video here for just a minute. I'd like you to talk about this discussion question uh, amongst yourselves or by yourself or uh, with friends or family, and it's this. Why do you think Jesus chose to teach with authority? Now, I've given you at least a, a one-part answer to that, but there's a little bit more to it. Why do you think Jesus chose to teach with authority, and why was it important that he do so? Talk about that, or think about that for a minute, and I'll be right back.
Well, the first reason that comes to my mind is that Jesus was teaching his own material. I mean, think about it. Uh, according to the doctrine of inspiration, which we believe as a church, the Holy Spirit literally carried the human authors of Scripture as they wrote down what God wanted them to write in the Scriptures. And so Jesus was teaching his own material. He is the original, ultimate author of the Scriptures. Another reason why I think Jesus did this is that because, because of the sin nature that existed in his listeners, in, in the audience that was there at the synagogue and the sin nature that resides in our hearts. In other words, Jesus had to teach with authority because if he didn't, we won't listen. And if we do listen, we still might consider his teaching optional. You see, the Lord, he doesn't make suggestions ever in the scriptures. He gives commands. And he does so because he's God. And those commands are for our own good. So those are just a few thoughts on um, how I think I would answer that question and, and why I think it was important that Jesus taught with authority. Next, uh, let's look at the text again, and, and I'm going to read verses 23 to 28. Follow along with me, please. It says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. All right, here's number two on your outline. The second truth that this passage tells us about Jesus, and it's this. Jesus removed demons with spiritual authority. He removed demons with spiritual authority. Now, demon possession is described in several places in the New Testament, and it, it seems to have been quite common in the region where Jesus was ministering. Possession is used to describe this phenomenon because the New Testament Greek word that refers to demon possession can literally be translated demon-possessed, which, which also means to be under the control of a demon. So what, what is demon possession? Well, in essence, demon-possessed persons are unbelievers invaded by an evil spirit that takes control of the victim's body. Victims manifest a variety of different physical and mental illnesses or afflictions when they are uh, possessed by a demon. Uh, some become exceedingly violent. We see that in Matthew chapter 8. Some are made mute. Mark chapter 9 tells us that. Uh, some are blind, dumb, have seizures, uh, or mutilate themselves. Uh, Mark chapter 5 provides an example of that. 
other symptoms that we see in the New Testament of uh, demon possession include a change in voice, clairvoyance, speaking foreign languages that are unknown to the person who is possessed, uh, threatening anything or anyone representing Christ, or the inability to confess Christ, or, or like being repulsed in an extreme way by the name of Christ. Jesus' presence and teaching here in Capernaum seemed to stir up the demons that had a stronghold in that region. And that seems to be why we have this event taking place in the worship service in the synagogue when he's teaching. So notice it says in verse 24, the evil spirit declares that Jesus is the son of God. I know who you are, says the spirit, the holy one of God. Now, this is important. It's important for us to understand and not miss because it's, it's, it, it has always fascinated me and I found it a little ironic given the context. I mean, think about this for a second. The demon proclaimed Jesus's deity before the people or the religious leaders acknowledged he was God. Think about that for a second. It's also a reminder, though, that simply believing in God in sort of this generic, vague sense is not sufficient for salvation. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 19 talks about that. It's where James says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder, but that won't save you. You need a personal relationship with Christ. And I'm paraphrasing James there in chapter 2, verse 19 of his letter, but Still, uh, those are a couple fascinating, I think, uh, insights that we can glean from verse 24. It reminds me of what the 19th century British bishop, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, he, he wrote this in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. It is one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It is quite another to say He is my Savior. And Lord, the devil can say the first, but only the true Christian can say the second. I hope you can say the second. And if you can't, I would love to speak with you about how we can get you there. Well, uh, let's move on in verse 26. Notice the unclean spirit cries out in a loud voice and comes out of the man that he's possessing. This verse, verse 26, should haunt us and humble us. And, and here's why. Did you know that human beings are the only creature in the entire universe that will not immediately do what God says to do? We, we are the only creatures in the entire universe that will not immediately obey the Lord when told. The winds obey him, the waves obey him, and as we see here in the text, the demons obey him. And the rest of creation obeys Jesus, but not us. We are the only creatures to whom Jesus says, follow me, and we consider it optional. 
Or we choose one day to follow him and we choose another day not to. This is just further proof of why all of us have the inherited sin, inherited sin nature that uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon called an ill-tempered horse that uh, is apt to run away. I, I, always, I love that metaphor that Spurgeon uses. We are like wild mustangs that need to be broken and bridled in order to follow the Lord. And praise the Lord that he loves us enough to pursue us and do that if necessary. Well, I think there's some encouragement here for us in these verses. I think these verses can help us and encourage us during this pandemic here in 2020. Um, here's why. Because Jesus has authority over demons in the spiritual realm, we can be confident he has authority over everything else in the physical realm. Thus, we don't need to fear demons, and we don't need to fear any other leader on earth. Uh, this reminds me of the time in John chapter 19, uh, just before he was crucified, when Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replied, You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Wow. We should be encouraged by these truths. So let's uh, look at the text again, and I'm going to read verses 29 to 34. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Here's the third point on your outline, the third truth that this section of Mark 1 tells us about Jesus, and that is Jesus healed afflictions with physical authority, with physical authority. Notice the subtle clue that we learn about Peter's personal life here. Peter was married, and we know that because he had a mother-in-law, and the fact that he had a mother-in-law would imply he had a family as well. It's also worth pointing out here in verse 32 that sickness is not always an indicator of demonic influence because there are two groups distinguished in verse 32. Notice it says that they brought to him the sick or those who were Demon oppressed, or oppressed by demons, excuse me. Now, let's just be clear. All sickness is a byproduct of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Some sickness is caused by specific sins committed by the individual. And some sickness is caused by demonic influence. And this is something today's faith healers seem to miss in the scriptures because they often practice bad Bible study methods. 
Now, let me, let's just pause the video here again, and I'd like you to think about this discussion question. Why didn't Jesus heal everyone he encountered during his earthly ministry? Why did he not heal everyone that he encountered during his earthly ministry? And I want to encourage you to uh, keep your Bible, your, your finger in your Bible or your, or your bookmark uh, in Mark 1. I want to encourage you to jump over to John chapter 5 and read verses 1 through 9. And notice there's a multitude of ill, lame people in John 5, and Jesus only heals one of them. So talk about that discussion question, and I'll be right back in a minute. This is a really important question for us to wrestle with. And the reason is that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is so popular in the world today it tries to convince us that the primary purpose of Jesus' ministry was to heal and do miracles. And this is just simply not true. It's not true. Or another thing that uh, false gospel preachers from the health, wealth, and prosperity movement try to say is that if we just have enough faith we can be healed of anything or have anything that we want from the Lord. And that's not true either. The short answer to the question, why didn't Jesus heal everyone he encountered during his earthly ministry? It's simply this, because healing was not the primary purpose of his ministry. Now, if we don't come to grips with this reality, we will set ourselves up to be deeply, deeply disappointed in the Lord. We, we will have expectations of the Lord that He never intended us to have. Now, should we ask the Lord for healing when we are afflicted physically? Yes, absolutely. The Scriptures tell us that He invites us to do so. However, we have to, we have to ask in prayer for healing from, from suffering or physical affliction, we, we have to do it with, uh, with the understanding that if he doesn't heal, if he chooses not to, there's a good reason why. It's because he's determined our suffering is better for us than our healing would be. Now, this passage here in Mark chapter 1, where we see this miracle done of him healing um, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and uh, we see at the end of chapter 1 in verses 40 to 45, Jesus also cleanses a leper. Now, uh, these two events raise a reasonable and fair question, and it's this. Why did Jesus do miracles? Why did he do them in the first place? So here's letters A, B, C, and D on your outline. I want to try to answer this question. I hope this really encourages you and equips you to, to address this with other people you run into who, who have maybe been influenced by the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. First of all, the first reason why Jesus 
did miracles, this letter A, they proved his claim that he was God. They proved his claim that he was God. In John chapter 10, Jesus told some of his critics that he, that he was doing miracles so that, quote, you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So proving that he was God was important because when he healed people, and some, not all, but when he healed some people and said, your sins are forgiven, the response from the Pharisees was, only God can forgive sins. Next, here's another reason why. Letter B, uh, miracles validated the message of the gospel. They validated the message of the gospel. You see, part of the gospel message that Jesus preached is that he would be killed by the Jewish leaders and rise again three days later. Predicting his own death and resurrection sounded just as crazy back then as it would today. However, Jesus' miracles would have caused onlookers to think, hmm, well, if he can cast out demons, he can heal the sick, he can calm storms and multiply, multiply loaves and fishes, he can probably resurrect himself too. Additionally, at the end of Mark, we're told that Jesus empowered the apostles to go out and do signs and wonders in order to confirm the message of the gospel. That's in Mark chapter 16. So, so miracles validated the message of the gospel. Here's, here's the third reason why he did them. Letter C. They demonstrated his goodwill towards people. They demonstrated his goodwill towards people. We see here in in. Well, we actually see it in verse 41. I didn't read it yet. But uh, in verse 41, um, and we see it in chapter 6, later in Mark, when he multiplied loaves and fishes, we see that Jesus was motivated by compassion. That's not the only thing that motivated him, but it was part of his motivation. Compassion, in part, moved him to heal people. Now, the, the, i got to clarify this. It wasn't that he felt sorry for people being uncomfortable, but rather because he knew the human race living outside of the garden was never God's desire. The whole reason we have suffering and affliction and ailments here on earth is because Man sinned against God in the garden where everything was perfect and he had perfect fellowship with God. And then man was kicked out of the garden just as Satan and his demons were kicked out of heaven for disobeying God. And as a result of our sin, we suffer here on earth, the consequences of our sin. So all suffering is a byproduct of the fall in Genesis 3, as I said earlier and our rebellion against God. And Jesus' miracles, here's, here's, another, here's another kind of, I guess I would call this C2 maybe, C2 on the outline. Another reason why I think Jesus did miracles is to provide a hope-filled preview of the new kingdom that's coming. Okay, so don't, so don't miss that. He wanted to show his goodwill towards people here on earth 
who were suffering because of their sin in general. They were suffering because they were outside of the garden, but not in heaven yet. And he did miracles to give a preview of what life will be like in the new kingdom with him. Therefore, Jesus' miracles were never intended, never intended to bring heaven to earth, but instead to cause people on earth to long for heaven. That's what, that's one of the many things he was trying to do. Well, here's letter D, the fourth reason Jesus did miracles. They allowed people to serve him more effectively. They allowed people to serve him more effectively. Notice uh, back in verse 31 how Peter's mother-in-law, right after she was healed, she got up and started serving them. And many people that Jesus healed in the Gospels responded by evangelizing and serving the Lord right afterwards. This means that miracles aren't for making our life on earth easier, but instead for making our service for the Lord better. In addition to the reasons I've already given in points A, B, and C, miracles are actually the exception instead of the norm during Jesus' ministry. I, I, for reasons I don't want to get into right now, we, we tend to amplify or magnify and be fascinated with the miracles that Jesus did in his earthly ministry as though they should always happen when we always want them to happen. But that was not the case. This is because suffering, not comfort, is more effective at helping the Lord's people serve him better. So, so don't misunderstand me here. In the cases where he did heal, people got up, evangelized, and served Jesus. However, not everybody got healed. In fact, most didn't. And one great example of that is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're, excuse me, chapter 12, we're told that the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Uh, many scholars believe this was some chronic physical ailment. And according to Paul, he asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh or to heal him of this ailment. And the answer he got from the Lord is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So, so if the Apostle Paul, who healed people himself, couldn't get healed from his chronic physical ailment, certainly we shouldn't be shocked when we're not healed either. Paul concluded in 2 Corinthians 12 that the Lord had given him this thorn in the flesh to prevent him from becoming prideful for how the Lord was using him. The Lord used it to keep him humble. And so, so that's commonly, more often than not, why the Lord allows suffering to continue and doesn't heal. Because he has sovereignly and wisely determined that the suffering is better for us than the healing would be. That it, it will make us more dependent on him and it will allow him to use us more effectively than if he had healed us. 
Now, this is obviously the Lord handles this on a case-by-case basis. But I just wanted to point out, in the scriptures and in church history, more often than not, he does not give the miracle healing. Again, as I said earlier, we, should, we can ask. We can ask and we should. But by faith, we trust if he heals, great. If he doesn't heal, we still trust him that he has good intended for us by not healing. Well, again, how can this give us hope and encouragement during this global pandemic in 2020? Well, we can rest in the fact that if we become ill with COVID-19 or some other disease, the Lord is able to heal us if he wishes. And if he doesn't, because God can only do good for his people, we can trust that he has something better he wants us to accomplish through the illness. And if that illness leads to death, the Christ follower will get to enjoy an eternity with the Lord in which there will be no more crying, no more pain, and no more death, and no more sin. And that is, that is great news. Well, let's talk about applications. I've got two quick ones for you. First of all, I think this text calls us to submit to Jesus' teaching. Of course, I'm referring to the authority of God's Word. Simply put, that means that if God's Word says to do something, then we do it. And if it says we should stop doing something, we stop. When our will collides with God's will as revealed in His Word, we are supposed to be the ones that yield, because He won't. And this includes the parts of God's Word that we know and the parts that we don't know that maybe somebody else points out to us. Say, for example, a pastor or a small group leader, a spouse or a friend. Now, please keep in mind, it still applies even if you don't read God's Word. You're still accountable for it, which is why I am frequently urging you to make reading God's Word part of your morning routine so that you will know what He expects of you and you will be blessed in reading and obeying it, applying it to your life. And because the Word comes from the heart of a loving, holy, good, generous God who wants the best for us, we should even more so want to read it and submit to it. Here's the second application. Think spiritually instead of physically. Jesus' Jesus's encounter with the demon-possessed man in the synagogue should remind us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This, this doesn't mean demons can control Christ's followers, nor does it mean demons are to blame when we sin. It means that there are often, not always, but often spiritual causes behind our behavioral and medical problems. It means we need to avoid putting worldly labels on things the Bible specifically calls sin or demonic. And because we live in a first century country, first, first, first world country, excuse me, uh, where the gospel has been proclaimed, been proclaimed widely, 
I think the evil one is more subtle than spectacular in his work. Thus, we need to be more discerning, and we gain that discernment by reading and knowing his word. Well, I hope this time in, in the word has been encouraging and edifying for you. Before I sign off, I just want to say that I realize many of you are discouraged and for various reasons during this pandemic. And so for this reason, I'm going to start signing off with a verse of encouragement to hopefully lift your spirits throughout the week. Uh, and this week, this week's verse is from Isaiah 44, verse 21. I formed you, meaning I made you, you are my servant, and you will not be forgotten by me. It simply means that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the Lord cannot forget you. To forget is human, but to remember is divine. It means that if he's delaying answering your prayers, it's not that he forgot about you. He's doing something, and he's doing something good. So just remember that this week. Please stay tuned to our website and our social media channels for the latest updates on when we'll be reopening our services again. Until then, I hope you have an awesome week. Continue to walk with the Lord. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.